If you got your Bibles, let's turn to Genesis chapter 2. As we continue our study, the title of our lesson this morning is The Creation of Man. The Creation of Man. We will be in verses 4 through 17. Genesis chapter 2 and verses 4 through 17. Uh, I'm going to begin this morning, uh, of all things, talking about gun control. As we all know, uh, and you think, what in the world's gun control got to do with with Genesis? Um, As we all know, there there was another school shooting back on Valentine's Day, what, about a week and a half ago, and I've mentioned this before. You know, every time something like this happens, and by the way, it's a a terrible thing. We we, we all feel for them because that could be us, right? It's, 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 It's just a, you know, we can relate to that. But inevitably, after something like that happens, the calls for, you know, people start placing blame, right? That, that always starts. And then, of course, inevitably, they want to have uh, gun control. The whole conversation becomes about gun control. And it drives me absolutely insane. And here's why. Whether you, you may be here today and you may be completely for gun control, you may be completely against gun control, you, you may be like many people somewhere in the middle, but what drives me insane is the issue is not guns at all. I mean, I grew up and went to Walcott High, and if you walked in the parking lot, there was every truck had a rifle in the rack in the parking lot. There's always been guns, guns in school. Nobody shot anybody. See, the fact is the issue is not guns and it's easy to talk about guns because it keeps society from having to go deeper and look at what the real problem is which nobody wants to to do you see the fact is we've got an identity crisis in this world we've got an identity crisis in america we we've lost our mirror we don't know who we are anymore you see, at one time, we believed in the Bible. We believed in, in God. We, we had an anchor for our society. But the fact is, the vast majority of our children now are being brought up, being told that they come from monkeys out of random chance. And let, listen, don't let anybody ever tell you different. If you really believe that, that will drastically affect the way you live your life. Your worldview changes, it, 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 it centers you, it anchors you, it, it, it basically is your, is your lighthouse to how you, how you navigate this world. And see, believing something like that, it, it cuts you off from a relationship with your Creator who created you. Believing something like that, by the way, cuts you off from a judge who will one day hold you accountable. It robs you of any real meaning from your life. And in fact, it, it, it robs you of any real hope for the future. In fact, uh, years ago I, I ran across this story. There was a, a liberal theologian by the name of Friedrich, I can't say his last name, Schleiermacher or something like that. And he, he spent his whole life really destroying the Bible. He was a theologian, but he didn't really believe the Bible and as he got to be an old man, there was a story. One day he was in a park and he was sitting there and, and he, somebody saw, one of the policemen saw him and thought he was a vagrant. And they asked him, they said, uh, who are you? And, and he looked up and he said, I, I wish I knew. Because there's a lot of people who could say that same thing. I, I don't know who I am. Because we've been cut off from the Bible. We've been cut off from our, our history 
of who we really are. And see, if you do all that, by the way, it all comes down that you'll, if you never know who you are, then what Paul said actually becomes true. If, you know, if there's no, if there's no God, if there's no judge, then just eat and drink for tomorrow, you're gonna die. Just do whatever you want to do. Live however you want to live. And see, that is exactly what people are doing. I mean, listen, I, I, I read, the, I'm sure like you guys do, you read the news, you follow the news articles. We, we live in a day where we have awesome technological power. We have awesome biological power. If you, if you ever, do you see the discrepancies in the world? We, we, can, we can literally create babies in the wombs of barren women with our technological and biological power. At the same time, we kill millions of them every single day like it's nothing. How do those two go together? We, we, we have technological and po- biological power that can keep old people alive for longer and longer and longer. And then we turn around and use that same power to, to euthanize people when the going gets too hard. You see, the fact is, we got all this power, but we have no moral basis of how to use it. We've lost all that. The fact is, we live in a day when it really does seem that the power of life and death is in the hands of men more than ever before, yet we live in a moral vacuum of how to use that power. Now, you say, well, why do you bring all this up this morning? Because in light of all that, Genesis 2 has never been more important than it is today for our culture. To, 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 to re-anchor ourselves, to reorient ourselves of who we are. Because it's only in Genesis 2 that you will find a worldview that literally explains who you are. In fact, it's only in Genesis 2 that you will find the worldview that explains why the world is the way it is why we are different from animals, why we can, on one hand, be so good, and on the other hand, we can be so evil. All of that's found right here in Genesis 2. So if you got your Bibles, let's turn there, and we will begin in verse 4. Now, once again, it's just a reminder, we've gone through Genesis chapter 1, and as I said uh, when we went through that, Genesis chapter 1 is kind of 10,000-foot view of creation. It goes through day one, day two, all the way up to, to day six. Genesis chapter two basically is God going back and in detail revisiting day six. It's not a second account of creation, as some people say it is. That's not what it is. It's a detailed view of, of day six, and it fo- focuses specifically on the creation of man and woman. Now, it begins in verse four with a very important statement. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. These are the generations. This is a, in the Hebrew, this is a line of demarcation. What this tells us is this is a completely new section that the writer, in this case Moses, is starting something brand new. What he's about to tell us is the history of mankind. Now before he does that, he wants to set the scene. Look at verse 5. It says, when no bush, and the Hebrew word there is sia, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant, that word is eseb, of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Now, 
right here in verse 5, we have something that can be very confusing if you, if you, if you don't really study it. Remember, chapter 1 tells us that vegetation was created on day 3, right? Everybody remember that? Man is created on day 6. Yet, right here in chapter 2, it's getting ready to tell us about the creation of man, and it says there's no bush. Everybody see that? So it sounds like if, if, if there's a discrepancy between chapter 2 and chapter 1. Chapter 1 says the vegetation was created for the man. Then you get here to chapter 2, and it's about to tell us about the creation of man, and it says there was no bush, there was no small plant of the field yet. So what... A lot of people say, well, look at that. There, there's a discrepancy. Now, let me tell you, if this is a discrepancy, then whoever wrote the Bible would have been an idiot not to see that, right? I mean, how dumb would you have to be to lay out verse 1 and then come to chapter 2 and say this? I mean, that's not it at all. It's not a discrepancy. In fact, the explanation is this. There were some shrubs and some plants that were created on day 3, but there were also some other vegetation that are that have not been yet created, okay? There, there's something else. And, and by the way, this is confirmed for us by Hebrew scholars. I said when I read it, the, the word used here for shrub is sia, and the word used for plant is isia. These two things had not yet sprung up on the earth here in day 6. And it tells us why. Look at verse 5 again if you've got your Bibles. It tells us, they, they, number one, they were dependent on rain. Number two, they were dependent on a man tilling the soil. Everybody see that? They, they hadn't sprung up yet because there's no rain on the earth and there was no man to till the soil. Now, both rain and tilling the ground come in chapter 3. Okay, They come after the fall. So these plants, whatever they are, they don't come until after sin enters the, the world. So it's right to say here in chapter 2 that they were not here yet. Now that raises the question, well, what are they? Okay. So what chapter 2 is telling us is that when this chapter opens, we are in a pre-fall environment. We are in a pre-sin environment. So what are these plants and shrubs that come after the fall? Well, to answer that question, we have to kind of quickly glance ahead to chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. And I'll read it for you. This is God. This is after sin has entered. He's talking to Adam, and he says this, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. See, it's telling us right here that there's our answer. The shrub or the bush, the sia of the field, these are the thorns and the thistles. These are the weeds. You see, before sin enters, these things haven't come up. There's no briars. There, there's, no, there's no cactuses or thing, anything like that. They're part of the fall. They're part of the curse. They don't exist on day six. And the small plant, the eseb of the field, these are plants that require tilling. Remember, in the pre-fall world, Adam's not in the garden. He, he don't have a set of hairs. He's not, he's, not, he's not making rows and planting seed. He's not doing all that, right? He, he, those, those types of plants aren't, aren't there yet. In Eden, plants are flourishing of their own accord. It's not until the fall that God tells Adam, by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread of the ground. So these, these other plants that have not appeared yet are plants like barley, oats, corn, 
potatoes, things that require a man to till the ground. Everybody with me? So there's plenty of plants all over the world, plenty of fruit trees, plenty of things, but there's no, there's no, there's no thorns and thistles or, or blackberry bushes or anything like that yet, and there's no crops that a man has to till the ground for yet. Those have not yet appeared. So that's what he's saying here. So again, he wants us to understand we are in a pre-fall environment. Verse 6, and he says, a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. In the NIV, it says streams came up. In the NLT, it says springs came up. What, what we know is this. We don't understand exactly how this worked. But what we know is this. Before the fall, there is no rain. Okay, rain, rain doesn't come from the sky. Everything is watered because of a very high... The, the earth has a very high water table. So maybe the water is kind of bubbling up through the ground. Maybe maybe it's so high up that when the sun hits it, the mist comes. You know, it's evaporating and mist has come. I don't know. But we know there's no rain, and we know everything is watered uh, by, um, by, by water that comes from the ground. In fact, rains will not come for a thousand years. We'll talk about that as we move through Genesis. In fact, let's talk about it now. <laughs> I want to point something out that I was when I was studying this. It's amazing to see what occurred before the fall and what occurs after the fall. And there's a lot of good lessons in that. For example, rain is a product of sin. It is a sign of judgment. See, we look at rain as a good thing, don't we? And it is. It is a good thing. But there's a part of rain that's part of the curse, part of judgment. You see, before the fall, the watering of the earth, it was a given. Adam never had to get up in the garden and, and check his phone and, and, and look at that rain. and Right? Man, I hope that gets here. Isn't that what we do? How many of us do that? Did you get it? No, man, that thing went right over me. Right? Adam didn't have to do that. It was like he had a natural sprinkler system. He didn't have to worry about it before the curse. Everything just got watered. It, it, it didn't. There's no drought. There, there's no. Oh, it rained over there. It didn't rain over there. He's not checking his. He's not checking all that. It, didn't, it, it was just. It was just a given. See those things that we're talking about: drought, lack of rain, the fact that it rains at your house and it doesn't rain at mine. That's part of the curse. That's part of the fall. Sometimes the rain comes. Sometimes it doesn't. That wasn't the way it was was on earth before sin. That's all part of the of the curse. You see, after the fall, rain actually becomes a means by which God can bless and God can judge. You go back in the Old Testament. He said, I made it to rain over here. I I didn't let it rain over here. It's actually a means of judgment. It's a way that he can bless and he can judge. But before the fall, the watering of the earth, it's just a given. Nobody had to worry about it. Never. You know, is it going to rain at your house? There wasn't anything like that. After the fall... It's in the hands of a sovereign God to determine where it falls and where it does it. Now, when you read verses 5 and 6, you can see that God is setting the scene here. He's saying that when man is first formed, when man is first created, he doesn't have to deal with any of the issues that came with sin. Everything, as he said at the end of day 6, is very good. There's not any weeds to deal with. There's not any... I mean, if y'all like us, every year we, we plant a little garden, right? And then the weeds start coming. And then it gets harder and harder to go out there, you know, and finally you just give up, right? <laughs> you know, that, at least that's us, right? Or Kathy, it's not me, but... 
Um, so there's no weeds, right? There's no crops to till and plant, and, and there's not any worry about whether it's going to rain or not rain. I mean, it's like an un, it's a natural watering system. Listen, it is an absolutely perfect world. No stress at all. Nothing to, to worry about. And it is into this world that we read verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust. Now, that Hebrew word is afar. Do you remember... Does anybody remember how many words are in the Hebrew language? 8,000. 8,700 words in the Hebrew language. As opposed to English, which has... Anybody? About half a million. 8,700 versus half a million. So if you only got 8,700 words, then one word can mean a lot of different things, right? We've seen that in our study. The word afar can mean dirt, clay, earth, mud... It can mean all kind of things. So it says the Lord God formed the man of, and, and most of the time we see it translated dust, but it could just be easily be clay or mud or earth or whatever. So he forms him of afar from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. It's an amazing thing if you go read what man is made of. And I was looking the other day at a, at a list of chemicals that we're made of, things like carbon and oxygen and hydrogen, and the list goes on. And if you go take a, if you were to go out and take up a scoop of dirt and test it, those exact same chemicals are in dirt that's in us. I mean, we're all this, made of the same chemicals, right? So that, and that's, that's exactly what's stated here in, in Genesis 2. But again, we said this in chapter 1, that is not what makes us human. What makes us human is the fact that God breathed His very breath into us and we became a, a living creature. This Once again, what makes us in the image of God isn't something... We, we said this a couple weeks ago. Remember, you know, they, they want to say, well, man uh, shares 98% of his, his DNA with, with monkeys. We share, uh, I think it was 60% of our DNA with bananas. Y'all remember that? that? That's not surprising at all because we're all made of the same stuff, especially with animals. We all have... Our brains are made of the same material. Our, our lungs, we all breathe the same way. We all uh, digest food the same way. That's not surprising at all. But the fact is, at the end of the day, what makes us human is some, not something you can test under a microscope. It doesn't matter how much DNA. It doesn't matter the chromosomes, the molecules, the chemicals. What makes us human is not physical. It's spiritual. And that's proven by the very fact that you can kill this body and I'll still live forever. Because who I am is not, a, nothing, it's not physical. What makes me human is not physical. It's what's, in, it's what's inside of me. It's an immeasurable thing that comes from God and God alone. Now what we see here is there is no pre-Adamic man. There's no evolution taking place here. It doesn't come from a monkey. It doesn't come from... from a, God forms Adam as a full-grown man, out of the afar of, of the ground. And by the way, we, we talk about, and we're going to talk about this more as we move through Genesis. If you're one of those here today, and you say, you know, I, I can believe the rest of the Bible, I can believe the New Testament, I can believe Corinthians, but I just really have trouble putting my mind around Genesis chapter 1 or 2 or 3. I'm going to tell you once again, you cannot have your cake and eat it too. You accept the Bible as a whole or throw the whole thing out. Because if you go to the New Testament, the New Testament, and we're going to see this more next week, continuously refers back to Genesis. 
I'll give you some statistics next week of how many times in the New Testament Jesus and Paul and Peter continually go back and refer to Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, talking about Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. It was obvious to Paul that Genesis 1, the description of Adam being created, was a factual, historical account. He refers to it over and over and over again. So you cannot have your cake and eat it too. You can't throw out Genesis and say, I'll keep the rest of the Bible because it doesn't work that way because the rest of the Bible bases much of its theology on what comes out of Genesis. So man has been created here in verse 7. The whole earth is his domain, but of course he needs a home, just like we do. Okay, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, reading on 9 through 15. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris which flows out of east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, these verses in general tell us something very important. The garden is not a mythical place. Moses is going out of his way to describe to the Israelite people who are going to be the first ones to read this that this had a physical location. It, it could be located geographically. We're not dealing here with a fairy tale. We're, we're dealing with actual history. For example, he uses phrases like in the east. By the way, you may say, well, what does he mean in the east? Well, remember, when he's writing this, Moses is in the Sinai Desert. Right? He's wandering around. before they, he, He's writing this before they go across the Jordan into uh, the land of Canaan. They're in the Sinai Desert. So east of that, that, when he says in the east, he means east of where we are now. So, so again, he's giving them specific things. He talks about the land of Havilah, the land of Cush, the land of Assyria. These would all be nations and, and lands that are known to the people of Israel. He's saying that's where it was it was placed. Now, I say all that because one of the questions that comes up is this. Can we locate the Garden of Eden? Can we know exactly where it was located? A lot of times when you read a Bible, the Bible will state that the site of the Garden of Eden is in the Middle East, situated somewhere over uh, where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers are today. And by the way, I think that's true. I think east of the Sinai Desert would be somewhere over around modern-day Iraq or Turkey or, or over in that area. I think that's probably true. But we also need to understand that we will never, ever be able to pinpoint its exact location. And that's because the description in Genesis does not fit with the present-day geography in that area. For example, even though it calls out the Tigris and Euphrates rivers... It doesn't fit with where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers are today. See, Genesis 2, for example, go back and read it again. It says there was a garden flowed out of the Eden, and that garden split into four rivers. 
So it's saying those four rivers came from one head or one source. But if you go over there today and you map and you or go go on the internet and look up the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, they don't start from the same source at all. I believe they come together down near the Persian Gulf, but when they begin, they're not close to one another at all. In addition, the other two rivers, the the Pishon and the Gihon, they no longer even exist. They're not there anymore. Now, the question is why? Well, you have to remember the flood changed everything. We're going to talk about this as we move through Genesis. But from the Bible standpoint, there's really two worlds, so to speak. There was the world before the flood, and there's the world after the flood. I mean, the, the flood basically destroyed everything on the face of the earth. It remade everything from, from what it was then to what it is today. By the way, the New Testament confirms this. You make a note of this. There's a wonderful scripture in 2 Peter chapter 3. I want you to listen to this. Peter is talking about people who say, well, you know, uh, Jesus hadn't come back yet, and not, we don't think he's coming back. Listen to what he says. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They're saying, look, man, we're here today, and everything's been the same from the very beginning of time. Nothing changes. It just goes on and on. Remember we talked about in chapter 1 the the evolutionists believe in something called uniformitarianism? Y'all remember that? Which basically, they believe from the beginning of time, whenever that was from the Big Bang, everything has basically stayed the same all the way through. That's why they can look at a layer of strata and say, well, those were laid down over millions of years, right? Because they just believe everything the way it is today has always been that way. Now watch what Peter says. But they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That's Genesis 1-2. And listen to this. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. See, what he's saying, there was a world before the flood, but that world is gone. It's over. It's done. The, the, the mountain that existed before the flood was over there. It's gone. Another one now is over here. The rivers that existed before the flood, they're, they're gone. They're done. It's over. There's some maybe new, some new rivers that formed over here. Everything has been completely redone. So it's very difficult to look at anything before the flood and try to figure out where it is because everything's completely different. As you can see, that world is gone. It's over. It's destroyed. See, when the flood happened, it laid down, and we're going to talk about this when we get to the flood chapters. It laid down literally these, these strata, and you can go to the Grand Canyon and see them today. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It laid down these strata thousands of feet thick, and it just covered the earth's surface. So the fact is, we have no idea Wherever the garden is, it's been buried. It, it, the, the, the earth was completely remade, co- totally changed as a result of the flood. So it's just, we can say, yeah, it was over there in the Middle East, but that's about as close as we're ever going to get to it. Now you may ask, then how do we still have a Tigris and Euphrates rivers? Isn't, it, isn't that the same Tigris and Euphrates rivers? No, it's not. And if you want to know why do we have a Tigris and Euphrates rivers... It's the same reason we have a Thames River in Connecticut, a Severn River in Maryland, and a Trent River in North Carolina, by the way, which are all rivers in England. 
You see, when the English settlers came over to America, they, they found a river and they named it the Thames River because that's what they knew in the land they had come from. Or they go to North Carolina and they see a big river and they name it the Trent River because that was a, a river they knew in England. You see, again, they're all named by American settlers to remember where they come from. Well, in the same way, when Noah and his family and his descendants get off the ark and there's a river and they name it, what are they going to name it? They're going to name it something they knew, just like people all down through history have done. So they saw these two rivers, they named one Tigris, they named one the Euphrates, but that doesn't mean they're in the same place. Might be close, might not be, we have no idea. So we need to keep that in mind, that there's pre-flood and post-flood, and the pre-flood world is gone. It's completely different. Verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now remember, the whole earth at this point is, is, is populated with, uh, with trees and plants and vegetation. There are all kind of different species are over the whole earth. Some of them are fruit-bearing, some of them are probably not. Some of them are very beautiful to look at, probably some of them not so much. But here we see God make some choices. See, when he creates the gardener, garden, he becomes this divine gardener. And he decides, I'm going to make these certain trees spring up. In other words, he picks just like we would if we were planting a garden. We go and pick what we like, what we think is the most beautiful. He does the exact same thing. It's only the best of the best for his creation. And he, he makes these certain trees, only the most beautiful ones that are good for food, he makes to spring up or plant in this garden. Verse 15 and the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work and to keep it. Now again, remember, it's always interesting to keep in mind when you read in, in before chapter 3 what God put in the world before sin and what came into the world after sin. And right here, before sin, you see what? Work. Work. See, work is not part of the curse. It was in the world before sin, before the fall came. You see, some people, when we think of paradise, if I said paradise in your mind, most of you probably got a tropical island with a, with a nice beach and a hammock, and you're not doing absolutely nothing. But see, God's idea of paradise was this beautiful garden, and he put the man there to work it and to keep it. And he did all that before sin entered the world. So work in itself is not part of the curse. Matthew Henry said this, While his hands were about his trees, his heart might be with his God. He, God created us to engage in productive work, and there's satisfaction in, in doing that. It's not part of the curse. See, even in paradise, Adam had to work for his food. Now, what he had to do, I got no idea. I, I can't answer that. You know, if there was some pruning, I don't know what he had to do. But the important thing to see here is that work itself is not the curse. What, what the curse is, it involves the difficulty of working with ground that is cursed. You know, before he could probably, you know, he could probably prune something and then two days later, boom, it was, you know, it was easy. Today it's not like that at all because the earth itself is groaning. The earth itself is cursed. And it's the, the, what makes work so hard is that we have to work against the curse of the earth. But work itself is a good thing, and it's something that we should be, be thankful for. Now, along with the natural trees in the garden, he places two others. Look at verse 9. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
The tree of life is an actual tree with actual fruit. But there's something about this fruit on this tree that basically regenerates man. I don't know how... That that would be amazing that you could literally have fruit that you could eat and it regenerates your cells. It regenerates everything you're made out of. So you literally, you eat from that tree, you will live forever. In fact, this tree is so powerful that even after Adam and Eve had sinned, they had to be put out of the garden because God says even after they sinned, if they ate of that tree, they would still live forever. So this tree has some kind of of power in its fruit to regenerate the cellular structure of, of a human being and just make them live forever. Even after the fall, they had to be kept kept away from it. Now, Adam is free to eat of this tree as much as he wants. There's no restrictions on it, no, no commands. But that's not true of the second tree. And that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Often in pictures, we'll talk about this next week with Eve. It's, it's funny how pictures... And things we grow up with frame our, right? I mean, for example, you always, any picture of Eve, you see a snake. It was not a snake. It's not a snake. We'll see that. In fact, it's called a beast of the field. It's not a creeping thing. It's a beast of the field. It's not a snake. But in our mind, it's a snake because every picture we see over and over and over and over again. We'll talk about that next week. Same thing here. We see pictures. It's her eating a what? An apple. We don't know what it was. We know it was beautiful. We know it was. she desired to have it. It looked good. It looked tasty. But we got no idea what it was. The Bible never tells us. What we do know is that tree came with a command and it came with a consequence. Look at verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man. Now, if you got your Bible, circle that. That's important. He never tells Eve. Never tells Eve. He tells Adam. Eve's not even, by the way, even Eve doesn't exist yet. She's coming in the next chapters. He talks to the man, and he gives man this command. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. He tells Adam that the consequence of disobeying this command is death. And by the way, even though this is physical death, that's only a part of it. Remember, our spirits live eternally. This death he's talking about is separation from God. We, we are eternal beings. Every single one of us. We're created to be eternal beings. Physical death is a part of it. But the death that he's talking about here is an eternal separation from God. That is a horrifying consequence of disobeying this one command. But here's the question I ask. Why did he even give that command? In fact, shouldn't it be... Think about this. Wouldn't you think it would be a good thing to know the difference between good and evil? Don't we want our children to know the difference between right and wrong, good and bad, good and evil? Why would he give them this command? Don't do that or you'll know the difference between good and evil. Why wouldn't God want Adam and Eve to know that. See, the fact is, it's not that he doesn't want them to know it. His concern is the way they are to know it. Let let me see if I can explain this, okay? God himself knows good and evil, right? In fact, he says it in Genesis 3.22, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. God knows good and God knows evil. 
but God doesn't know it experientially. In other words, He never does evil. Right? I mean, think about this world, and, and He's existed for eternity, and He creates this world. God's never done evil. There's no evil anywhere in the... anywhere. But yet, He knows good and evil. Well, how does He know it? Well, He knows it by relating it to Himself. In other words, anything that's consistent with His nature is good. Anything that's inconsistent with His nature is evil. For example, God is truth, right? The opposite of that, outside of Him, He would never lie, but He understands what a lie is. Everybody with me? So He doesn't experientially experience evil, but He knows it in relation to Himself. But only God can do that. Only Him. See, men and women, Adam and Eve, were created to know the difference between good and evil by relating it to God. In other words, they were made to listen to God, to trust that God knows what He's doing, and obey Him. So if God says, don't eat of that tree, you don't have to experience yourself, you just don't eat of it, because if God said it, it should be true. Here's the easiest thing. It's like a child in a hot oven. Right? The parents can say, don't touch that oven, it's hot. And the child can trust that the parent knows what he's talking about and obey. He knows the oven's hot, but how does he know? Because the parent told him. Or he can say, well, I'm going to try this for myself. I'm going to experience what hot is. See, when man ate of the fruit, that's exactly what he did. He said, I'll do what God did. I'll decide for myself. I don't need him to tell me. I'll decide for myself what is good and what is evil. In essence, he chose to become his own God. He chose to relate good and evil to himself as opposed to... Everybody with me? And by the way, the longer we go on, we see this more and more. Everybody just decides what's good for them. And we've completely abandoned our father, our parent. And and you see the difference. It's a lack of mistrust. It's a lack of saying, "I I don't need your authority. I don't need you to tell me what to do. I'll figure it out on my own. It's exactly what Adam and Eve did. By the way, this also helps us understand why obedience is a defining trait of the child of Jesus Christ or the, or the, or the, or the, or the, the, the saved person. Jesus said in John 8, 31, to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word. You see, a real Christian goes back to the point where Adam and Eve should. He starts relating everything to the Father. What does the word say? Just tell me what's right and wrong. I don't need to know for myself. You tell me. And I, everybody with me? So we're, we're being, a, a, a new creation in Christ is being put back to or restored back to the place where Adam and Eve were, where we trust in our God to tell us what's right and wrong. We don't have to know for ourselves. So here we've got God has furnished a garden. In it, he has put everything that man could ever need. There's no trouble, there's no weeds, there's no lack of rain, there's, there's, there's any of that stuff, there's no stress, there's no anxiety. God gave him all these different things to eat. He gave him a job. Next week, he's, we're going to see next week, he gives him a wife, he's got companions, he's got everything that he absolutely needs. There's only one prohibition, one thing he's told not to do. And what we'll see is there was no... What I want you to see today is there's no reason to do what he did. There was no reason to do what he did. There was no reason to disobey God, to mistrust God, 
to doubt God's authority, to resent anything. All that was taken away from him. That's why we'll see the sin of man was absolutely inexcusable. Okay? And we'll talk about that more as we move through. Next week, we get to turn to the creation of God's most beautiful, wonderful, best thing He has ever put on the face of this earth. And I mean that with all my heart. The creation of woman. Genesis chapter 2, 18 through 25. I heard a joke this week. You know, it says, you'll see next week, uh, Adam's on the earth and God brings all the animals and says, name them. And he does that before Eve comes along. And one of the commentators said, well, why does he do it before Eve comes along? The other guy said, because he didn't want to have to worry about a second opinion. So we'll, we'll get into all that next week. Let's pray. Father.